0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Close Readings Podcast. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and um, today I have, uh, well, what I'm doing here is really giving a Christmas gift to myself um, by uh, staging a conversation that I've been wanting to have now for a little while, and I hope it'll feel like a gift to everyone listening as well. Um, Our guest today is Langdon Hammer. Uh, who's an old friend of mine and a a teacher of mine. Um, Lanny is the Neil Gray Jr. Professor of English at Yale University, where he works on the history of poetry and its place in the culture. Um, Langdon Hammer works on poets' lives. He works in archives. He does close readings of poems. He's interested in Critical biography and literary theory and questions of poetics of all kinds. Um, the poem that um, Lanny has agreed to to talk with us about today is James Merrill's poem "Christmas Tree." And, um, and I suppose this is a slight departure from my, my usual method in which I asked someone on that I want to talk to, and I let them choose the poem. In this case, I suggested the poem. <laughs> um, I asked Lanny if he would talk about this poem with us for, for, the, for this occasion, and he very generously agreed. You can find um, Lanny's uh, Modern Poetry Lecture Series on, online at the Open Yale Courses. It was a course I once was a teaching fellow for years ago. Um, and, um, the lectures are free and wonderful and, uh, stimulating. And I hope people will go listen to those. Lenny's the author of, uh, the biography of James Merrill a book called James Merrill life and art, which came out from Knopf in 2015. Um, and it's just a, a marvelous and staggering accomplishment, uh, beautiful book. Uh, he's also the author of an earlier academic monograph called Heart Crane and Alan Tate, Janus Faced Modernism, uh, which is pu- published by Princeton University Press. But it, in addition to writing those books, Lanny's edited several other books. He He's one of two editors of a, a book that's near and dear to me called The Whole World, Letters from James Merrill, which Lanny edited with Stephen Yenser and which was published by Knopf. Also, um, that book came out in 2021. Um, Lanny also has edited two Library of America editions, one of the poet Hart Crane um, and one of the poet May Swenson. And then you can find Lanny's essays and reviews in places like the New York Times Book Review and the New York Review of Books in the Yale Review, the LA Review of Books. Lanny's also poetry editor at the American Scholar And, um, I'm very happy to say is working on a biography, critical biography of Elizabeth Bishop, um, which is under contract with, um, FSG, which is, you know, maybe the, the book that I most want to read (laughs) in the world that, um, so, you know, please, please go on writing it, Lanny. Um, I was trying to think about, you know, what I could say that would give some um, quick indication of my appreciation of the person that I'm going to be having this conversation with. And I, you know, I have um, too many stories. It's hard to choose just one. Um, Lanny and I have known each other now for, I don't know, 25 years, probably. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one story came to mind. It was a kind of offhand moment. I'll bet Lanny doesn't remember it himself. But w- when I was in graduate school, we were both part of something called a, I think the name of the group was the biography working group or something, something like that. So we would have, um, you know, guest speakers come in who were working on biographies or who were writing a kind of biographically inflected literary criticism. And they, would t- and they would present new work. And there would be a discussion group made up of faculty members and graduate students to to talk about that work. And I can't remember who the speaker was on this occasion, and I can't remember um, what the topic of the presentation was exactly. But a moment in the Q&A lodged in my mind and has been a kind of guiding light for me ever since. Uh, The the topic in in the Q&A was the question of the great danger or the fear of doing a biographically reductive reading of a poem. So you know, the kind of bad reductive reading that one gets when someone tells you that, well, the secret to this poem that you love is actually that event X happened in the poet's life at some point, and that once you once you have that bit of biographical data, now you know what the poem is really about. Um, and of course, you know what's what's distressing about a reading like that is that it it just totally takes all of the interest and complexity and um nuance and ambiguity out of a text that you love and reduces it um, to uh, its being a mere sort of symptom of a usually traumatic event in a poet's life. Um, that was the topic at hand. And and Lanny, who was in the audience with me, r- raised his hand and said, you know, the problem with biographically reductive readings is not just that they take too crude a view of poems, which they do. Um, We all know they do, but also that they take too crude a view of lives. Um, And by that, I took Lanny to mean that lives are, after all, just as complex and various, Mm. as ambivalent and creative as poems can be, and that the ways we've developed to read poems might be reoriented onto the reading of lives and onto the evidence that lives leave behind. And that when the right kind of critic does that work, does that work with imagination and sensitivity and generosity, but also with you know what Keats, subject of an earlier episode, called negative capability, the result is that poems and lives now illuminate each other and that the criticism that results from that kind of work can take its place alongside them. Um, I I think, I trust that in uh, the conversation that Lanny and I have today about James Merrill's Christmas tree, mm-hmm. you'll hear that kind of generosity and creativity and imagination at work. So Lanny Hammer, welcome to the podcast. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for coming here. How are you doing today?
1: Fine. Thank you, Cameron. Uh, I certainly don't remember that. Story. <laughs>
0: um,
1: I'm glad you do, uh, and I'm glad you could make make sense of it the way you did.
0: Well, it's um, it's helped me make sense of a lot of things. Of a lot of um, it's it's given me a sense of what it is I, I want to do um, as a as a critic myself. Lately,
1: um, right I've I've had uh, as a kind of inspiring koan, um two sentences from Susan Sontag in her essay. About um, Walter Benjamin, she says, one cannot use the life to interpret the work, but one can use the work to interpret the life. She doesn't really explain what that what that means, but uh, but I like that reversal, and I think it's something along the lines of what what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, I think so. Well, what I'm talking about is is uh, is really just what I heard you say, and I think it's um, yes. I think the kind of work you do, and one of the reasons why I so admire it is is because it seems in the spirit of that of that line from Sontag. Um, so so Lanny, we're here today to talk about James Merrill, but in particular to talk about um, a poem that he wrote very near the end of his life, and. Um, you know i wonder if uh we could begin our conversation by my asking you to read the poem aloud to us um,
1: that would be my pleasure hand.
0: great and then and then um and then we'll go on from there
1: mm-hmm. christmas tree i i'm going to interrupt myself before I begin and preface it with a couple of thoughts. If you haven't read this poem or heard this poem before, you need to know in advance that this is a dramatic monologue. A Christmas tree is speaking to you. Um, It is also as will not be apparent on the podcast, a shape poem, which is to say it's in the shape of a Christmas tree. There's much to be said about that. And I'll talk about that in a moment, but let's just have these two thoughts in mind as I read it. Christmas tree. To be brought down at last from the cold sighing mountain where I and the others had been fed, looked after, kept still, meant, I knew, of course I knew, that it would be only a matter of weeks that there was nothing more to do. Warmly, they took me in, made much of me. The point from the start was to keep my spirits up. I could assent to that, for honestly, it did help to be wound in jewels, to send their colors flashing forth from vents in the deep fragrant sables that cloaked me head to foot. Over me, then, they wove a spell of shining purple and silver chains, eaves dripping tinsel, amulets, milagros, software of silver, a heart, a little girl, a model T, two staring eyes. The angels, trumpets, bud and bee, The children's names in clown-like capitals somewhere a music box whose tiny song played and replayed i ended before long by loving and in shadow behind me a primitive iv to keep the show going yes yes what lay ahead was clear the stripping the cold street My chemicals plowed back into the earth for lives to come. No doubt a blessing, a harvest, but one that doesn't bear nor ever dwelling upon. To have grown so thin, needles and bone, the little boy's hands meeting about my spine, the mother's voice holding up wonderfully, No dread, no bitterness, the end beginning. Today's dusk room aglow, for the last time, the candlelight, faces love-lit, gifts underfoot, still to be so poised, so receptive, still to recall, to praise,
0: well, thank you very much, Lanny. It's such a beautiful poem. Um, and um, and yes, uh, both, both things that you had the good sense to mention before reading it are things that um, we'll want to talk about today. So both the fact that this is a poem, uh, that it's a dramatic monologue, a poem in the voice of uh, the thing named by the title, The Christmas Tree, and that it's a shape poem, that it, that it, poem takes a particular shape. So, um one thing I should mention is that uh listeners to the podcast can uh find the text of the poem um in a link that I'll put in the show notes. The the poem was I think first published um but Lenny can correct me if I'm wrong about this in a memorial issue of Poetry Magazine that appeared shortly after James Merrill died and then appeared again looking slightly differently um and and that's maybe something that we can talk about today as well in the collected poems and uh, i think probably in selected editions of merrill's poetry that have come out since since then as well but i'll put a link to the poetry magazine version of the poem in the show notes so people will be able to see it there and i encourage you to take a look at it because yes it's quite striking and um um, brings a kind of smile, uh, to the face to, to see the poem laid out in that way. Um, but Lanny, before we get to those things, um, I don't want to presume that our listeners know much at all about who James Merrill Mm -hmm. was. Um, and, um, it strikes me that, that to fully appreciate what's going on in this poem, one needs to know certain things about, or one one might be helped by knowing certain things mm-hmm. about who, who its poet was. So, um, what can you tell us there? I, I know um, I know you you more than anyone else in the world. Just um, have a wealth of information to provide. But w- what would be the most useful way to set up a kind of context for this poem?
1: Well, it's it's interesting that you you led into our conversation with the well this whole issue of biography and reading and um, whether it. Uh, you know, limits a poem or, or expands it to contextualize it bi- biographically. Um, in this particular case, this is a poem that Merrill um, completed in the last weeks of his life. And um, it's not hard to hear Merrill speaking through the tree in very uh, direct ways about Uh, his sense of his vulnerability uh, and uh, indeed the fact that he would, um, like the Christmas tree, uh, have only a matter of weeks ahead of him. Um, He was at the time, uh, let's see, um, approaching 68. Um, He um, had been sick with AIDS for uh, almost a decade. He'd been diagnosed in 1986 and he was in 1994 when the poem was was uh, begun and in in, in December 1994 he was um, uh, weakened. He was um, he describes himself as going in the wrong direction. his, uh, his treatments are failing, uh, and he's aware of it. So this is all part of the consciousness of, of uh, the poet creating this poem. Uh, the poem refers in a pretty specific way to a Christmas tree, uh, a specific Christmas tree that Merrill and his partner put up uh, in uh, just after Thanksgiving, 1994, uh, in Merrill's apartment on East 72nd Street, and um, it's a, it's a tree that um, they enjoyed for about a month, uh, and and then had to had to had to strip and 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 put out on the mm-hmm. sidewalk because um, Merrill and Hooten. We're going to Arizona, uh, where um, they intended to spend the winter, and where, in fact, Merrill would die, and where he completed his work on the poem. Um, Merrill's letters are um, full at that time of comments about um, the help that Peter is to him uh, and the kind of care that he uh, is, is giving him. And um, I think the, this is a poem in part about caregiving, mm. and, um, and it's resonant in, in all those ways. Uh, I think, and now maybe it's appropriate to start talking about and thinking about the shape of the poem.
0: Um, oh right, yeah.
1: Uh, Merrill's Merrill's uh, poem, as I say, read in this biographical context, um, if we treat the Christmas tree as a, 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 a charmingly simple mask for the poet, uh, the poem becomes a very direct declaration of his impending death uh, and and his his consciousness of it and his um, his desire to meet it uh, in in a um, appropriate way um, and it, it, it it's a poem very much about keeping your shape. <laughs> so huh, we're, uh-huh. uh, keeping um, uh, keeping your poise, uh, to use a word that the poem ends on in that
0: those last sentences. But when you say keeping your shape, I mean we know. Um, well, I have a Christmas tree downstairs right now. Yeah, it's already you know the, the moment you get at it home, it's starting to lose its needles and that kind of thing. And and I know from reading your book and from reading Merrill's letters that on a kind of parallel track or something. He was someone who was always sort of conscious of the shape Mm. he was in. I mean, even before he was sick, right? Um, isn't that right? Um, Sort of aware of his weight and aware of things like this, yeah.
1: That's true. Uh, And and someone who put great store in um, manners, in keeping up appearances, Mm. in maintaining a certain kind of lightness, right uh as a poet as a person uh as a friend um and we can see all those impulses i think in 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 the poem um the shape you you uh you're, you're going to provide a link to the poetry version
0: that's right uh
1: the poetry version i'm not sure exactly how that came about uh the poetry version is significant because it is centered. Right. Uh, the, and has a the,
0: star at the top.
1: And it has a star at the top. That's right. Um, I haven't examined the the drafts of the poem. Stephen Yenser could tell us more about this. Um, but, you know, significantly, the version that Stephen and Sandy McClatchy settled on as authoritative was not centered. <clears throat> Right, uh, and there was no star at the top either. Um, it was um, rather a strange shape, a kind of um, cropped shape.
0: Uh, right, I, I can. I guess what I can do is um, I'll tweet out um, a, an image. Um, it's it's not linkable, but you know I'll tweet out an image of the the poem as it appears in the collected poems for people who are curious. But right, it's as though if you were facing the tree. The left hand side of it is sort of lopped off. Um, That's right. And and Lanny, you can can you explain to us why that might have been the image that the shape that Merrill had in mind, or what the significance of right. that particular shape is?
1: Yeah. Um, yes, I think I I think there's a, a number of things to say about. It. One is it imitates the view of of a Christmas tree from another room uh it is as if you were looking at the tree uh in this case where Merrill actually had his desk, uh, which would have been in a in a uh, in a room apart and uh, the view of the tree would be slightly cut off by the door frame uh the idea for that may have come to Merrill from a lithograph by Fairfield Porter that represents a Christmas tree in a living room, uh, but uh, the view is from another room, again, cropped by the doorframe. Uh, so I, I think Merrill probably had this in mind, and that, that's that's an image that's easy to, to Google and find. Uh, the, uh, the idea of a, a shape poem, <clears throat> it, I think it evokes a kind of um, uh, willful naivete, uh, a kind of, um, or let's say, uh, almost a kind of willed innocence. Uh, a poem that's shape is meant to charm a child. <clears throat> uh, and that a poem that at the same time is evoking some of the charms of childhood, uh, right. and of childhood. Experience. Um, it's like Merrill to, um, I suppose, play with a form in in this kind of way, uh, and yet and yet to complicate it further. Mm. He doesn't, as it were, give us a straight version of the Christmas tree. <laughs> It's an oblique one, uh, yeah. And um, it's a poem that's that's partly concerned with um, with a um, a dying man's view of a kind of normative childhood ideal. Huh. Uh the. The Christmas tree is it's in the living room. It's in the center of the, the home. Right. Uh, there are two children mentioned in the poem. Right. Their names are on one of the ornaments or two of the ornaments. Uh, they're in capital letters in the poem, Bud and B. That is short for probably Beatrice B-E-A. Um, They suggest the gender binary, a male and female child. Uh, Their names suggest budding and being Mm -hmm. uh, the organic and the natural. Um, There's a mother whose voice we hear at, at one point holding up wonderfully she says about the tree right uh so you've got there at least three members of the normative nuclear family right um
0: where's the father
1: interesting question i you know i i uh I was thinking about that i looked at the poem last night thinking about our conversations today and i said "You know, i said where's the father <laughs> and it, it well i mean and there are different ways we could think about that question in relation to merrill's life right um i would say that this is a a model of a a family that he was perhaps supposed to have and didn't.
0: Mm -hmm. So in that case, Uh, perhaps he, he would be the father. Exactly. Right. Okay.
1: Um, uh, And there's a certain amount of nostalgia uh, or longing, I suppose, um, invested in that image of this, Actually, rather ghostly family. Right. And yet, uh, and yet, the the family has no reality either. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's uh, um, the family. Well, I mean, the the names of the children are are puns. Right. they they then they're no more no more real than
0: names. I suppose. Well, right, and, and the, the the evidence of their lives is uh literally ornamental, right? I mean Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, right, so uh, I suppose this has been implied by a lot of what we've said and most listeners will 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 no doubt know this. So forgive me, but maybe it's important just to say explicitly that Merrill was a gay man who um who was also in some sense an only child. Mm-hmm. Um the only child of his father and his mother, though he had half siblings. <laughs> um, and that um, the question of whether he would have children himself mm-hmm. is is not just something that perhaps his parents or uh, people around him wondered about or thought about, but it shows up sometimes as a kind of... Um, Worry or preoccupation or uh, mm, provocation in his own writing, in his own poems uh, over the course of his life, um, the question of whether he would reproduce.
1: Absolutely, it's uh, in fact it's a running theme, mm-hmm. uh, and and those two half siblings, um, uh, Doris his older sister and, uh, Charles, his older brother, uh, both had large families Mm -hmm. and you, you have to feel that, that, um, in the context of his family, and now maybe we should bring in a little bit more biography, uh, in the context of a, a family that, uh, has as its head of head of the family, Charles Merrill, the uh founder of merrill lynch one of you know america's most ambitious and adventurous uh financiers in the 1920s and 1930s uh merrill had a um uh grew up grew up with uh uh, in in a family that had certain dynastic ambitions right and uh, uh you know the culture Probably applied enough normative pressure to feel as though uh, he was supposed to marry and have children. But uh, if it hadn't, uh, he certainly would have been getting it from his 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 uh, his family as well. Right. Um. He he jokes in the nineteen fifties about um, how a certain kind of crisis with his partner. David Jackson, um, resulted in, well, questions about what his life would be like, uh, how he would would live without children, and um, he jokes about how he and David became involved with the spirit world using the Ouija board as a kind of replacement uh for an earthly family uh and and merrill and jackson then for the next almost 40 years uh conduct seances and and have a kind of lively um, commerce with the uh uh the spirits that they they contact using the board um these kind of questions about Merrill's relation to normativity—let's just call it sure. that—are uh, are, are very present in in this poem. Um, the it is, so far as I know, the only shape poem. He you know, he liked to play with how a poem looked on the page, and and you know he could do various things with that. But the only This is the only poem that I can think of that is uh, in a kind of mimetic shape uh, that, you know, represents an object.
0: Right. He he seemed like someone who was quite happy to play with things like stanzaic forms where the poem would have a shape, but the shape would be the shape of a poem or this kind of poem or that kind of poem. Right. Uh, But there is something that seems kind of... um, you know, it's um, if you set the ch- a child the task of writing a poem about a Christmas tree, you might get a poem in this shape. <laughs> I mean, certainly its content would be different, <laughs> That's um, right. but there's something um, childlike about the mm-hmm. about this approach to, to form. And and I want to yeah. come back to um, because I love what you said about you know the 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 shape of the poem in the um, in the book version. Yeah, is is uh, a tree seen from another room. And th- that fact s- suggests um, a kind of a bleak relationship to the uh, normativity, to go back to that word, mm-hmm. that, that the icon that the Christmas tree is uh, represents. Mm-hmm. Um, it also occurs to me that if you have... The- the, the poem that's centered, that's in the shape it, that it was in that poetry magazine issue, it looks like an icon. Like, in right. other words, it looks like sort of like the platonic idea of what a Christmas tree shape right. might be. Whereas the book version looks like it might be a particular tree. Um, <laughs> y- you know, um, the the tree that was yeah. in the room. That, you know that, that was in the apartment while the poet wrote, or or a particular tree from memory, mm. um, rather than you know capital C capital T Christmas tree, yeah, um, and that that uh, swerving away from uh generalizable ideal to the kind of particularity of memory or the particularity of one's observation at the moment does seem like a, a move that's recognizably um, and Is that the yeah. right adjective? Yeah.
1: Um, sure. We'll, we'll, we'll call it marillion. uh And what else is marillion is just that he can't help himself. He can't stop complicating things. Uh, even precisely at this moment where he's, um, where he is, emulating
0: innocence and simplicity. Mm-hmm. So where do you uh, see that complication happening?
1: Uh, well, I mean, in this case, you know, he can't, he can't give you the tree straight. He's got to right. give it, he's got to give it slant right? to use Emily Dickinson's word. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, well, the poem itself is full of complications. Um, and, and I would, I would emphasize Kind of arbitrary complications.
0: Mm.
1: For example, yeah, that word eaves
0: dripping. Mm-hmm. Give us the context for that. Where does that dripping. come up again? Yes, yeah.
1: yeah. he says. Uh, okay, he, he says in the middle of the poem. Basically, okay, they they've cut me down. I know I don't have much life left, uh, but as compensation, they're making me beautiful. They're um, they are keeping my spirits up and they're winding me in jewels. What kind of jewels? Purple and silver chains. Ease dripping tinsel. Ease dripping. That's a hard word to say. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And this is a neologism. This is something Merrill came up with at the moment or at any rate. Or maybe he kind of just created it in his notebook or something and liked it and kept it, eaves dripping. It's obviously a play on eaves dropping, uh, which is our familiar word. Uh, But in this case, he says eaves dripping uh, as if the tinsel imitated icicles or snow uh, dripping or at any rate uh, falling from uh, the eaves of a house. he's you know he's he's kind of he's just produced this new word a kind of turn on eavesdropping Mm -hmm. what does it mean nothing (laughs) (laughs) it's it's just cute uh i mean it's a playful gesture um well you say that
0: but i i do wonder i mean the eavesdropping caught my eye or ear or whatever um and this idea that the poem, that the tree is seen from the next room. Yeah. I mean, it does suggest. I'm, try, I'm thinking of uh, poems that Merrill had written much earlier, you know, the poem mm-hmm. like The World and the Child or something, that, mm-hmm. uh, where the, the position from which the poem is spoken is of someone a room away from the action or in a different part of the house who can hear right. a bit of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but is hearing it sort of imperfectly and is filling in with his own imagination, right? And and maybe that setup, which is sort of generative for Merrill, evidently in some way, is still at work here in this right. poem. So so I don't know. Maybe that maybe eavesdropping is a, a relevant, a relevant sort of ghostly presence behind that, well, it, well, the word he that's does there.
1: Have, you know, he was very interested in houses uh, yeah. and architecture and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and so on. So there's and any thought of poems uh, as architectural constructions. So it's not surprising that, um, you know, his imagination would go there. In fact, what you're, describing right now, seems to me at the the starting place of one of his most famous poems, the autobiographical poem called The Broken Home, uh, which begins crossing the street, I saw the parents and the child at their window, gleaming like fruit with evening's mild gold leaf. So he sees He sees a a kind of nuclear family unit in a Mm -hmm. window in this kind of static tableau. And then he says, in a room on the floor below, sunless, that word suggesting shadow, but also punning on the lack of a sun, cooler, Meryl's temperament was cool, I suppose. A brimming saucer of wax marbly and dim i've lit what's left of my life at any rate there he is again positioned in a room in an alternate space in relation to this normative family ideal um, but yeah. to go back to eavesdripping for a minute yeah uh it it seems to me like a a, a kind of you know gratuitous moment of wordplay uh, it will flourish um, mm. that is less about, I don't know, making some kind of statement than it is about having fun uh, and, uh, and playing with the decorative and the ornamental.
0: Um, right. Here, here literally, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Literally. Uh, in the sense that he's talking about the ornaments on the tree, uh, which are amulets, milagros. Uh, which are you know objects invested with spiritual significance, uh, but here in the kind of secularized camp mode, where the tree is well made, made beautiful, uh, and made beautiful by objects that are kitschy, uh, and and knowingly kitschy. Uh, there's a sense of these, these decorations being all the more valuable and rich because they in fact have no particular value, uh, except as they are invested with um, feeling by the, by the poet, by the tree itself, by the family.
0: Well, I was going to I was going to say something like, "Oh, right, like art for art's sake," which uh, you know, as we know, yeah. is a, an idea that Meryl, you know, felt uh, devoted to or, or um, aligned with in some ways. But what you just said makes me think maybe that's not quite right because um, here it seems important that that the decorative is also imbued with the kind of personal or local mm. familial meaning or something, which you know isn't really what the Art for art, I mean, it isn't all the art for art's sake idea suggests.
1: But 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 that's right. I mean, this is a kind of you know very late aestheticism. (laughs) But it's also an aestheticism that you know, as you're suggesting, isn't high, Uh, isn't high culture. It is. It's located in something very particular. Something um, you know, certainly in this case, uh, a kind of mass custom. Right. Uh, the uh, the family's Christmas tree. Um, there is another kind of odd detail. Sure, uh, take
0: us there. I have yeah, questions they, about some some other odd details, but I want to hear yours. And then,
1: yeah, uh, this in shadow behind me, a primitive IV to keep the show going.
0: Oh, that was mine.
1: Uh, <laughs> so yeah. Good. <laughs> you're like, you're thinking what
0: yeah it's like he gives the game away there right because if one if 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 the way that's sort of in impo- you know one has to read the as soon as one knows about the circumstances of merrill's life one gets it as it were right ah he's the christmas tree he's being cared for and decorated and um and but but it's as though he, there the, the sort of mask slips or something and he the, he stops figuring it and and just says it or something very but what, literal
1: yeah, yeah. well it, it's funny that way because he had not in fact spent very much time in the hospital but he would very soon be in the hospital mm. uh, this primitive iv actually has a particular referent which is a um, a machine for uh, refreshing the water in the tree oh i you know maybe these were being sold in the mid 90s i don't know i've I've never seen such a thing but he he and peter had one uh in the apartment and you know significantly he sees it here as a primitive iv um as if the right as if the tree were in a hospital room uh and and uh uh, where he would, you know, find himself in less than two months.
0: So he is like the tree, but the tree is like a body in a, in a hospital room. So, in, in other words, the you know, um, there is a kind of m- mirrored or doubling of the um, of the kind of figuration that's going on within the poem. Right. Right. It,
1: yeah. Right. Right. Um, playfully. And and of course, he's playing with self-disclosure. I mean, mean, the other thing you can say about it that seems important is that Merrill has has to write a dramatic monologue. He has to put it in the shape of a Christmas tree. He can't just have it in the shape of a Christmas tree. He's got to make it in the shape of an oblique view of a Christmas tree. And then he can say something directly about his fragility and his mortality, hmm. uh, with these levels of complication, uh, it, which can be understood as themselves a kind of, you know, commitment to declara- decoration, to um, a certain kind of lightness and play, um, as not in any way as trivializing, but rather as the kind of conditions under which the seriousness of his fate could be represented and addressed. Um, I spoke earlier about um, a kind of commitment as a person as well as an artist to Keeping up appearances to uh, entertaining a reader uh, rather than making a reader feel bad <laughs> mm-hmm. or playing on a reader's heartstrings uh, or telling a reader what to think or how to vote, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of which Merrill was adverse to. Here he seems to find a way through this elaborate artifice to um actually express very moving sentiments uh and to um yeah and to you know find words for facing death in short
0: right right um the um the line that you site in the biography that, um, I'm, I'm worried I'm going to only be able to paraphrase it here and not get it quite right. But that that's Merrill's phrase from an interview is that the poet is a, is a man who chooses the word he lives by. Right. Right. Um, and, and here maybe we get the poet as the man who chooses the word he dies by. Uh, Um,
1: And, and, you know, uh, In that light, the closing words are, are extremely moving. Uh, yeah, let's,
0: let's let's read them again so they're fresh in mind. Um, sure, I, I'll, I'm happy to do it this time since mm-hmm. I've asked you to read before. So here, it, for people who aren't looking at it, we've gotten almost to the very bottom to the kind of base of the of the um, branches of the tree, and we're we're about to enter. So when I hit the word dusk, we're now at the trunk of the tree. That's right. you You can picture it. No dread, no bitterness, the end beginning. Today's dusk room aglow for the last time with candlelight. Faces love lit, gifts underfoot. Still to be so poised, so receptive, still to recall, to praise. Yeah. Lenny, talk to us about those lines.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think they show Merrill's commitment as a poet to um, a poetry that would be poised, receptive, full of recall, and ultimately dedicated to praise, Hmm. Uh, which is the opposite, of course, from the maudlin or the self pitying, uh, and, uh, that's, that's where he ends. That's the, as it were, the base of the tree. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and, uh, I think it's a, it's a very moving credo.
0: Yeah. Um, I, can you say more about what the word, I mean, you said that it was the opposite of maudlin, which I, I, I think I understand, the word praise. But as the, as the final word of the poem here, can you say more about what um, what that word might have meant in mm-hmm. Merrill's sort of poetic imagination or what it would have to do with, uh, if this is even the right kind of question to ask about it, with what a poem is meant to do Mm-hmm. Um, does he think that, you know, poems are meant to praise the world or something like that? And, and why yeah. that word in particular?
1: Yeah. yeah, well, you know, what would the alternative be?
0: To complain, mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> to protest, to mm-hmm. resist, maybe. Uh, and he's choosing against those alternatives and he's affirming... We sort of understanding poetry's function, but it's also, you know, in, in a very literal way here, suggesting that a Christmas tree's function is to praise. And what does what does that mean? I mean, I yeah, think, what does that mean? Uh, we well, you know, why do we put up Christmas trees? Uh, we we put them up to um, uh, celebrate the renewal of the world uh, in darkness to. Um, bring um living things into our home uh to um, yeah to gather families or uh at any rate um right loved ones around um that particular symbol
0: to to bring oh sorry um go go on yeah
1: and uh you know In that way i mean and the simplest level christmas tree is life affirming uh and and in that way we can understand it as a kind of praise uh praise of Mm -hmm. things Mm
0: -hmm. it it yeah that 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 all makes sense right so you know we're sitting here recording this a couple days before christmas Mm -hmm. um um having just had the solstice and you know the the darkest or the longest Mm -hmm. um night of the year and um and right one one understands what it might mean to bring a bit of green into the house at a time like this of course there's and this is woven throughout the poem too there's a kind of um poignant irony to that because in order to do so you're of course killing the tree right, right. The, the tree is the sort of sacrificial victim here to the uh-huh. um to the um in in the rite or ritual that that we all perform or many of us perform this time of year. Um, and there is a sense in which I suppose, given what you just said a moment ago that it, it gives up its life, but in doing so its function is to, um, renew the lives of the people who gather around it. Um, and also to be a, um, a kind of uh, center or a flagpole or something, as it were, around which generosity is performed, gifts are given, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and in all of, and in all of those ways, you know, it, I was thinking as we were talking about this poem, and, and clearly um, we're we're going to want to wind up this conversation um, soon. But I was thinking as we were talking about this poem. That you know, on the one hand, it it seems like the idea here is that Merrill is speaking as the Christmas tree, but but also as a reader, we're meant to understand that in some sense Merrill really sort of was ima- looking at the Christmas tree and imagining <laughs> himself in in its place. And you said earlier that um, you know part of what this poem is about, as you read it, is about being cared for and about the giving of care. Mm-hmm. Um. But, if, but 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 Merrill is also decorating the tree that the poem is, you know, mm-hmm. here for us. That is, he is the tree, but he's also decorating it somehow, mm-hmm. sort of for his reader. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I and I think there must be. Maybe this is a question we could end on. There must be something there to do with not just care, but what generosity. M- as a as a principle or value meant to Merrill, both in his life, of course, where he was um, generous, mm-hmm. um, but um, but also, you know, what sense would it make to think of Merrill's poetry as generous in some sense? Mm, um, mm, is is that mm. is that a is that a word that is resonant for you?
1: It is, uh, and I and I, you know want to connect it back to praise, uh, one of the most ancient functions of poetry, uh, one of the most primary genres, the praise poem uh, of, of poetry as a, as a form. Um, I think um, praise is uh, in liturgical context related to gratitude, uh and um in this way related to generosity, as you're describing it, um a kind of giving back, let's say um, and yeah i th- I think it's a it's a powerful note for this poet to end on. Mm. It's not precisely his last poem. Right. Um, there are a couple of others that he's working on at the very end of his life. Um, but it was, um, I think it, it's its clear, in fact, from certain comments he made that when he was, in fact, on an IV in mm. a hospital room in Tucson in February 1995, he was still working on this poem, thinking about it. Mm. Um, and yeah, uh, I think it, it's a poetry that, that ultimately affirms praise as one of poetry's essential functions. Um,
0: well, that's a beautiful place to end, Lanny. Uh, I want to thank you very much for um, your generosity in, in coming on and talking to me today. It's a real pleasure to me um, to get me to too. talk with you about this poem and this poet. I hope we'll talk again um, on this podcast. I know we'll talk again off of it. Um, uh, so uh, thank you everyone for listening. Merry Christmas to all who celebrate happy holidays in general. And um, I hope I hope everybody finds a bit of green in um, this dark time of year. Um, I want to remind people to um, subscribe to the podcast or follow it on whatever app you're using to get your podcasts. and If you like what you hear, leave a a review or rating. It helps others find it as well. Uh, We'll be back with uh, some exciting new episodes in the new year. Thank you very much, everyone. Take care.